0: Welcome to Sound Prints Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prints is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushivell. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prints for the week of January 28, 2024. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind invites everyone to our Winter 2024 Quarterly Meeting to be held on Friday, February 2, from 4.30 to 8.30 p.m. in person at United Crescent Hill Ministries, UCHM, 150 South State Street in Louisville, and from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. on the KCB Zoom line. Dinner will be at 5 p.m. at UCHM. The menu is spaghetti, salad with homemade croutons, garlic bread, and dessert. $6 per person and carryouts will be available. Be sure to call ahead at 502 895 4598 to sign up for dinner and for carryouts. We hope to have a bargain table available which helps raise money to support the roundabouts. The program and meeting will begin in person at UCHM and on Zoom at 6.30 p.m. The program and meeting will be held from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. in person and on Zoom. The dial-in link is six six nine nine zero zero six eight three three. 6833 and the code is 862 9889 6972. Our speaker will be Sean Riley from TARC. Sean is meeting with various groups and organizations in the Louisville area to gather information about what TARC 3 riders would like to see in the new TARC 3 contract now being developed. Please come with your ideas on how TARC-3 can be improved by changes in the contracts between the various entities involved in the service. Join the South Central Kentucky Council of the Blind on Wednesday, January 31, from 2 to 3 p.m. Central Time, 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, to learn all about working working and the effects income can have on your SSI, SSDI, and medical benefits. If you have generic questions, feel free to ask on the call. However, if you have any personal information you prefer not to share on our meeting, our speaker will be able to put you in contact with someone who covers your area. Our speaker is Elena Moore, and she is a certified community work incentive coordinator who works with those who are receiving Social Security benefits. She specifically helps with providing understanding of how earned income will impact your Social Security benefits, as well as your health insurance and any state benefits you may have. She provides these services throughout the western half of Kentucky. Her contact information is Elena, A-L-A-I-N-A, Moore, M-O-O-R-E, Kentucky Work Incentive Coordinator, Office of Vocational Rehabilitation. Her work cell phone number is 502 963-2206. 9632206 join the call from any computer cell phone or landline phone all are welcome the zoom number for this call is 6699006833 and the code is 7636894411 for a long time There has been a bug in the ACB Media Alexa skill that has not allowed you to switch directly from one ACB Media channel to another. We are pleased to report that this bug has now been resolved. Now, if you wish to play a particular media channel and ACB Media has 10 of them, you can simply say, Alexa, ask ACB Media to play channel one or ask ACB Media to play Channel 5. If you want to go directly from one channel to another, just repeat your statement and you will find that you're at the new channel. If you have any questions, you can give us a call at 502-895-4598. At its January 22 meeting, The guide dog users of Kentucky Anna presented a very interesting program on street crossings and how they have changed over the years. The speaker was Lucas Frank, who has been an instructor at the Seeing Eye for many, many years. This was an excellent program, and we are sure that you will enjoy it. We bring this to you on page two this week on Soundprints
1: page two. I'm Terry Turlaw. I'm the president of Guide Dog Users of Kentuckiana. I will announce the recording of this meeting will be available. I will send the, the link to all ACB lists on which this has been announced and on the, the several Guide Dog lists to which I have sent the link. And I'm going to give you my email right now. So, that if you don't get a link to this recording in the next couple of days and want it, email me. This is pretty easy. It is Terry, my first name, T E R R I E, Ter, the first three letters of my last name, T E R, at gmail.com. So that's T E R R I E T E R, at gmail.com. Now, as it is my great pleasure to be able to present Lucas Frank. Known to many of us, Lucas has been in the um, orientation and mobility and guide dog mobility instruction field for many, many years. I, I will not out you with how many. I was in, I had the privilege of being in one of Lucas's early classes at the CNI. Lucas, along with several other um, very active mobility specialists, has revolutionized how traffic engineers understand visually impaired travelers and the need for accessible pedestrian signals. If it wasn't for Lucas, probably um, two-thirds of the signals that are up in this country would not be here, because they would not exist in the traffic engineer's um, manual that they use. So, um, Lucas, if you would like to say anything else about yourself, please feel free. We're going to do this with a, a bit of a dialogue. I'm going to mention a point, and Lucas will say what he wants to about it, and then we'll go on to the next point. We're going to start from simple to complex with regard to what do we as blind travelers need to be looking out for in terms of where cars can come from, what can they legally do, and what do we need to be listening and watching out for? So, Lucas, if you'd like to say anything else about yourself, please feel free.
2: Sure. Hi, everybody. There are so many familiar names here uh, on this list that I'm looking at on my screen. It's wonderful to see you all. I wish we could all get together and, and uh, uh, do this in person, but this is what we'll we'll have to do. It's great to have this ability as well. Terry and I, as she mentioned, were in class together sometime in the late 1800s. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, yes with each other for many, many years.
1: I've heard you talk, Lucas, in other presentations about the value of us, those of us who can't see traffic, signaling in some way to drivers that we are about to enter the street. Could you address that point and talk about the, very, or the reason why and various ways we might do that?
2: Sure. Um, the cane travelers and, of course, most people do both at one time or another. Uh, it's always a good idea if you're initiating a crossing uh, and you're standing uh, with with a cane waiting to begin your crossing with whatever piece of information you're relying on as, as to when to initiate that crossing. It's a good idea with a cane to do what is often called flagging, uh, which means moving the cane either in an arc in front of you without committing your body to the crossing or uh, perhaps moving the cane vertically, with, uh, up and down a few times before initiating your crossing, so that you are signaling to drivers your intent. Because if you stand with your cane in a neutral position, then you just sort of spring off the curb. It can surprise a driver. So anything that you can do to make yourself make it more obvious, make yourself more obvious, and your intent uh, to cross more obvious is going to help you. Of course, with a guide dog, it becomes that much more difficult because you can't very easily sort of move the guide dog left and right, <laughs> or bounce it up and down and uh, before you initiate the crossing. So you have to think about it uh, a little bit differently. However, you know, I, I, the, there's an additional problem because, for from the point of view of drivers because the driver uh, at least has a shot of recognizing the, the long cane, the long white cane as an indicator of visual impairment Perhaps uh, uh, being a little bit more cautious in that regard. With a dog, uh, of course, dogs as as a percentage of people who are blind and cross and and out traveling and crossing streets are relatively rare from the point of view of drivers. The white cane is relatively well recognized. The dog is recognized as an indicator of blindness, but it takes a while for people to do that processing. So they see you standing on the corner with your, your beautiful. Labrador or, or, or German Shepherd or Poodle or what have you, and uh, the initial reaction is, nice-looking dog. And then they go, that's a weird leash. Wait a minute, that's not a leash. That, that's one of those, that's a blind dog. But by the, by the time they have done all that processing, they're often past you if they're moving. So that some, some additional indication that you are visually impaired, that you intend to cross, uh, can be helpful. How do you do that? Well, you know, obviously it may not be something you need to do at every crossing, but at certain crossings, one of the things that you might consider doing is giving a false right hand forward signal. Uh, So you're not actually committing your body, but you're at least doing an arm swing forward to the shoulder height that would indicate to the driver that you intend to cross. Movement like that will catch their attention. But one of the things you need to do is you need to practice that with your dog, because if you've never done it with your mm-hmm. dog, when you get to a down curve, the first time you do it, the dog may actually be startled into the street unwisely or distracted by the movement. So sometimes, you know, just stand still and make big move forward movements of your hand without saying anything. So you would do a big forward sweep of your hand and then... Uh, follow that up with uh, your normal hand signal and forward command to to initiate your crossing. But that initial big arm swing might catch the attention of a driver who otherwise Mm -hmm. might not be processing your presence correctly. Mm -hmm. In Europe, and in many other parts of the world actually, people routinely travel with a, a white cane as well as with a guide dog, at least in part for uh, recognition purposes so that they're recognized as guide dog travelers. In Holland, for example, and I, I go to Holland fairly frequently, I have family there, uh, and I'm familiar with the Dutch guide dog school, the largest one. Uh, what people will do is they, they have a, a short cane, it's not, not a full length cane, it's maybe waist high, not much taller than that, and uh, when they're about to initiate a crossing, they hold their cane out at shoulder height before they give the dog a forward command they're not using it on the ground but uh, and 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 use it to indicate their intent to cross uh, by the way long cane travelers do something similar before they initiate their crossing they might sh- slide their hand down the shaft a little bit so that it's not so heavy in their hand but they hold it out at shoulder height to initiate their crossing and then drop it down into a standard travel process uh as they're part way across the street uh I actually think that, uh, you know, our pedestrian environment in general, uh, is changing and, uh, I I think that considerations like this are going to become increasingly common for people, at least at certain crossings, uh, going forward because of Distracted drivers because of ultra-quiet cars and and all the other things that are having an impact on on pedestrian safety uh, in street crossings.
1: I was wondering if you had any thoughts about mid-block crosswalks.
2: If you have an accessible pedestrian signal there, it's something you might want to consider. First of all, locating mid-block crossings without accessible pedestrian signals can be Mm -hmm. tricky. Uh, you need to know where they are. There may be other clues in the environment that will, would help you get to the correct point. There is also a lot of work going on right now with what are called ta- tactile walking surface indicators uh, that might be used across the sidewalk to help someone locate a mid-block crosswalk. Uh, there are certainly things to be considered here. One includes parking lanes. So uh, even if you have an accessible pedestrian signal and you know that the light is, quote, in your favor, unquote, um, you know if you're popping out from behind a parked car uh the the driver cannot see your your white cane or guide dog below uh the the level of that car and so you appear like a standard pedestrian and and you they're not expecting you to move out so especially that initial part of that crossing should be approached with a great deal of caution um you know, the one advantage of of mid-block crossings is you only have to consider traffic from two directions, whereas at least conceivably at, at a plus-shaped intersection, you might have to consider turning traffic as well. So that's an advantage, but I would be very cautious there. And again, uh, coming off the curb, I would be thinking about getting out about half a car length and reassessing, making just pausing for a second to make sure nobody's running that light. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, before initiating that crossing, uh, and and be be careful on, on your way across there. Of course,
1: what do you think we want to might want to think about when we look at two and four way stop uh, sign crossings?
2: Yeah. This is a well t- two way you know typically um, two way crossings. Uh, to, uh, intersections let's say a plus shaped intersection with uh, stop signs on the minor street, but the major street does not have any control um, that those are quite dangerous uh, the, the The driver uh, if you're trying to cross that major uh, you're, <clears throat> there's no control there you know there, you, that's the type of thing you have to be really really careful about. Uh, you may want to avoid that, go an extra block or two to find a signal or at least a four-way stop that will help you get across that, that major street Uh, drivers. Those are, there are no pedestrian provisions there by law. There is an intersection. So people should be under, and there's an implied crosswalk in most States, but uh, that's a risky situation. I I guess it sort of depends on things like uh, time of day. If it's, your hearing lanes you know can is the is the wind blowing in one direction so limiting your hearing from the opposite direction uh you know all kinds of things like that, but I would be really really cautious about evaluating uh crossing a major at a at a at a two way stop um, four way stops you know that's an, an an eternal source of of uh uh, of argument, uh, about should you go with the parallel traffic or wait until after the, the perpendicular traffic has gone and then take, a, take that moment to initiate your crossing. Uh, I think it's gotten again, like so many other things, harder with, with ultra quiet cars. One of the problems with even with electrics, although they do make noise nowadays, they don't make any noise when they're stopped. And uh, I, I think that's a, a huge mistake in the regulation that I wish they would fix so that you had some indication that a car was idling as well. Uh, but that makes it quite a bit more difficult. I would think about using your flagging technique or your arm motion technique uh, immediately after the perpendicular traffic, and my own preference would be to, would be to initiate my crossing with, with nearside parallel. Uh, but you know, I, I, that's an eternal argument. As I said, there's, there's, they are, that's quite dangerous. Again, they're dangerous intersections, but again, I would, I would do my best to make myself obvious and to make my intent as obvious as possible before initiating my crossing. Thank you.
1: This now brings us up to actual traffic light signals, walk, don't walk signals. Lucas, could you give us just a general kind of explanation of, uh, the, the cycle and the kinds of phases that might be in the cycle, in the light cycle and what's involved in, um, if you come up to a traffic, uh, to an intersection that you know has a, uh, traffic light, what is a good approach to beginning to figure out, um, even if there is an accessible signal, what the different phases of the cycle are and what some safety considerations there.
2: Yeah, uh, it, it's difficult, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a moving target. For example, in Morristown, which some of you know quite well, um, uh, the intersection of Hart and South Street, which is a crossing that many of you have done, uh, is a, <clears throat> a fixed-timed crossing, so it changes every cycle until about 10 o'clock at night, and then it changes to actuation mode so uh it can, signals themselves can vary that's the beauty of computers you get that type of flexibility built in so the basic two types of intersections are what are called fixed timed intersections or actuated intersections a fixed timed intersection is the old style that many of us who are older uh will remember well uh where there is essentially uh a a a time for each street, so the big street gets, let's say, uh, 45 seconds, and the small street gets, uh, let's say, 25 seconds, and then there's a few seconds in between where the light changes from A to B or B to A. Uh, those are fixed timed intersections, uh, and. Uh, nowhere near, they're all, most common in, in downtown areas and big cities where they they have signals trained uh, done in such a way that there's a progression so a car can keep moving at a certain speed for a good distance. The other type of intersections are called actuated intersections, and they come in several different flavors. One is a fully actuated intersection, and one is a semi actuated intersection. Um, a semi-actuated intersection is an intersection where uh, the major has uh, <clears throat> has the green all the way through the cycle. What's a cycle? I think we're going to get into this later, and we'll talk about it more. But if you start, if you're at a, a point where one traffic movement starts to go, and then other traffic movements start to go after that, and then you come back to the first movement again, you have run your way all the way through a cycle. Each one of those individual movements is called a phase. So a cycle is made up of multiple phases. Um, And when we talk about the old-fashioned intersections that had, you know, a fixed time of 25 seconds for one street, 45 for another, that both of those phases together would make a very simple two-phase cycle. Okay. But now, uh, intersections because of computers can go up to eight and sixteen phases sometimes, so uh, it gets gets much more complicated. Um, a semi-actuated intersection has uh, a traffic light that that signalized semi-actuated intersection has a traffic light that allows the traffic on the main street to keep moving unless there is a demand by a car approaching on the side street. So if a car approaches on the side street and does not turn right on red, clearing the intersection, then then the intersection knows through a series of sensors that there is a car there. How How do those sensors work? Well, in the very, very old days when I was a kid, which is really old, they used to sometimes put in big springs on metal plates at an intersection like that, and the car would ma- press the plate when it rolled over it, and that would let a gear, geared sort of calculator figure out that there was a light there. Those were replaced by what were called induction loops, uh, in the, the 60s and 70s, uh, and those, that was a wire that was laid into the uh, the ground and attached to a computer that could sense the the mass of metal in a car that approached the intersection. And nowadays, there are frequently cameras, video cameras that are focused on a particular spot in the intersection that can d- tell that there's a car there. So <clears throat> back to semi-actuated mode, you've got an intersection where you have a major that you, that the engineers want to keep going as long and as uninterruptedly as possible. Uh, and then you've got a minor. Now, a car approaches on the minor and sits where the sensor can detect it. At a, when it gets to the correct point in the cycle, the, the major street gets a yellow. The side street, <coughs> uh, there's a moment where it's all red, and then the side street gets a green for that individual car that wanted to come out. That car will typically be allocated seven seconds of green light, followed by two seconds to determine if there's another car, followed by a yellow light for three or four seconds, followed by all red, followed by green back again for the major. I hope that makes sense. Um, So if you as a pedestrian are waiting to cross the major street and you don't push the push button there, then you have not told the computer that you're there. If you don't tell the computer that you're there, it doesn't know you're there and it will allocate seven seconds to the first car, car, a couple seconds more and then a change interval in red. That may not be enough for you to get across, let's call it a seven or eight-lane street. No, but you might
1: what have how many seconds there, Lucas? Ten or eleven?
2: Yeah, figure eleven. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And of course, you're not jumping off at the first motion. Maybe the the driver was checking their phone, so they left a little late. You know, so now you're going with that car, and you've only got let's say seven or eight seconds to get across those eight lanes of traffic. If you push the button you are in effect notifying the intersection that you need a pedestrian timing. And you'll get one. And that timing is actually quite generous. Typically, uh, the, if there is a pedestrian treatment there, in other words, if they're expe- expecting pedestrians and have pedestrian lights or pedestrian indicators, you'll get a walk indicator for about seven seconds. That's the walking man. Uh, the The person walking figure, which is then followed by a flashing don't walk. The flashing don't walk is <clears throat> is different. The walking man, that seven seconds is regulated. It has to be seven seconds. It used to be that it could be as low as four. I believe that has now gone away, and it has to be seven seconds. So it has to say walk for at least seven seconds, but then it will go into a flashing don't walk. How long will it flash don't walk? Well, it depends on the width of the street. So that flashing don't walk will vary depending upon the width of the street. And the width of the street is calculated at a rate of 3.5 feet per second. Most of us, especially guide dog users, are gonna walk considerably quicker than 3.5 feet per second. So let's say that uh, you had uh, an 80-foot wide street, okay? Okay. Uh, and let's just do four feet per second because it's it's easier. So <clears throat> after you push the button, when the light changes for that single car and for you, you would get seven seconds of walk, and it would begin flashing. Don't walk because it's an eighty-foot wide street. We can divide we can divide that eighty feet by the four of four feet per second, and we get twenty seconds of flashing. Don't walk. So you get seven seconds of walk, 20 seconds of flashing don't walk, plus a few-second change interval for it to go back to, to green for the, for the other street. So you go from having somewhere around 11 seconds to having somewhere closer to 30, which is a considerable gain by when you push the button. Nowadays, many of those intersections have accessible pedestrian signals. So you hear the, the tick, tick, tick of the locator tone. You push that button. It says wait, and then it will say Washington. Walk sign is on to cross Washington. Or if it's really well done, you'll get a rapid tick that sounds like a metallic woodpecker to let you know uh, that it's your turn to cross that street. From that point, you have that, that 30 seconds. Um, so that's a semi-actuated intersection. It's called semi-actuated because there are no actuators on the main street. The actuators are only on the side. Sometimes, not uncommonly, there are sort of hybrids where the turn lanes on that major street will have, have sensors on them. But and, and so if a car needed to make a left turn, it would hold the light on the main to allow that car to make a left turn as well. Fully actuated intersection have sensors on all approaches and are quite fluid. Uh, so we have one in the center of the little tiny town I live in uh, in in New Jersey called Chester, and uh, sometimes on a boring day I'll go watch that uh, just to see. I'm a little obsessive uh, just just to see uh, how how that works, and and you will see it allocate traffic, allocate signals to whichever car has, whichever approach has, has, has cars waiting. It's quite, and, but again, the only easy way to know that you have the light is to push the button, hopefully with an APS so you get the correct, uh, information about when to initiate your crossing. And again, even then I would exaggerate my motions in such a way that I'm notifying a driver that, uh, that I can, I can, uh, that I'm about to go. Those
1: buttons are extremely, extremely important to press. I, I can't, I, I think the O and M profession and guide dog mobility instructor profession, and me as a blind traveler, I can't emphasize enough, the importance of even if there is not an accessible pedestrian signal, to locate that pole and push that button.
2: Also, it's important to know, that when you get the light, <clears throat> cars can still turn in front of you. So, uh, get, quote, getting the light, unquote, does not mean that no car can turn in front of you. Uh, let's, let's posit a situation where you're crossing a major street. The parallel street is on your right. Okay. You, you have a, a lovely accessible pedestrian signal. You push the button. It gives you the metallic woodpecker. Tick, 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 tick. You initiate your crossing. You're halfway across the street. A car coming from behind your right shoulder makes a left turn in front of you onto the major, and shortly after that, a car coming towards you uh, makes a right turn onto the street in front of you and cuts you off twice, and your dog has to stop or slow down twice. Those were legal movements by those vehicles. They should watch out for you, uh, and they don't want to hit you for sure, but they have the right to turn in front of you. They should respect you uh, if they, in, the, in their judgment, will not intersect you or, or, or hit you or anything like that. Pedestrians often have the right of way, but that's a cold comfort, shall we say. Yeah. Sometimes.
1: And um, I know that from my own experience I became aware of these uh, kinds of turning traffic, working with a dog, and later when I, I, it really enhanced my cane skills because I knew what to listen for. And Mm -hmm. so I think we all need to really think where can cars come from if they make legal turns when I have the walk light and I'm crossing the street.
2: You know the standard rules uh, still apply and hold hold you in fairly good stead for the most part. You know that you you let's say you're crossing a minor and a minor can be a pretty big street. So when we talk about minors and majors, you know you you may be thinking about a country lane crossing a highway, and often the minor street that's kind of a technical designation. It can still be a really big street. <laughs> but the 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 major road is is considered the, the uh the major there and and the smaller street is 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 a minor bearing in mind that cars turning off of that major from, or or turning onto that major still have the ability to do that, and you need to do everything you possibly can to be as visible as possible and to make your intent as visible as possible. In particular, if you have a car on the minor that you're crossing that is intending to make a right turn, that driver is looking to his left or her left to see if there's a gap in traffic that will allow them to pull on. And uh, particularly that initial lane, that first lane with right-turning traffic, you have to be very careful. And I would make that motion more, maybe more than once uh, mm-hmm. before you initiate your crossing to try and freeze that driver. And again, if it's a major roadway that scares you to death, carry a short cane to make mm-hmm. yourself even that more obvious before you initiate your crossing.
1: Could you comment on... Um well we now have the OCO uh app uh on on iPhones mm-hmm. could you comment on that app and and what you've seen um for its value when there where there are, are no APS
2: Yeah I've been pretty impressed by it overall um the uh uh so just to to be sure that everybody knows what what we're talking about Terry the uh OKO is a, an app that was developed by a couple of Belgian guys. Um, I've met them. They're, they're nice people um, who just had an interest, I think, because of a friend of theirs who was blind. And so they decided to see what they could do. And they came up with an artificial intelligence paradigm for using the camera of an iPhone uh, to uh, be able to pick up walk-don't-walk walk signals uh and it they are usable i believe up until about eight lanes of traffic so it can see a walk don't walk signal across about eight eight lanes of traffic and when you uh you uh you would still have to push the button or whatever because it will not change the light for you but when it changes you will get in effect a rapid uh, rapid tick uh like the the metallic woodpecker to let you know that that light has now changed to a walk interval and that it will, uh, after the seven seconds, it will come down to, I believe they, they have a, a, a countdown that will give you, uh, or it will return to the walk interval to initiate your crossing. It will also give you a pretty good line across the street. So uh, the the way they advise that you use it is if the parallel street is on your right, uh, face your camera across the street, but slightly to the left of straight, and scan slowly to the right towards the parallel until you ha- pick up that signal across the street. And of course, you, the, the the problem can be with the, with a guide dog that if you if you use that line of sight as a straight line, and there is, for example, a car pulled out across that crosswalk a little bit, which happens fairly frequently, of course, and you're forcing your dog towards that straight line, then you might very well sort of push them into that that car that's blocking the way. So I would suggest using it for direction, using it for the walk, don't walk information, then dropping the phone on a lanyard or whatever and and letting your dog do the crossing, keeping track of your alignment as best you can using standard techniques. I would probably not use it uh, all the way across the street for just that reason. But it's been quite reliable. One of the areas that, that I have concerns, and in talking to them, this goes back a few months, and, of course, this technology evolves really, really quickly, that I would have some concern about is at night in a brightly lit commercial area with a lot of neon lights, headlights, uh, and, and other sources of illumination that could conceivably confuse the processing of, of the iPhone. But it's been a pretty effective tech uh, tool. As we
1: get into more complex kinds of situations, and I know we don't have time to do roundabouts justice in any way, but are there any comments you would like to share, perhaps giving on the the concept of roundabout and what we not, might need to know just at the very basic level?
2: Roundabouts are, my belief is, they're going to come in fairly large numbers uh, over the next decade. And again, this is an area where, uh, I think announcing your intent to cross and direction is going to be very, very valuable. Uh, roundabouts, are, why are roundabouts coming? They're coming because they're safe. They're safe for drivers. Uh, they're they, the Roundabouts drop podest, uh, vehicular fatalities and serious injuries like right off a cliff. I mean, people just don't. Die in traffic accidents at, at roundabouts. Pedestrians also, likewise, have a lower, low rate, pretty low rates of of of
1: injuries, uh, um,
2: incidents of any type at roundabouts. However, they're intimidating as hell because there's no pulse to determine when when a light changes. So, uh, typically at roundabouts, and let me just try to explain this a little a little bit. What roundabouts do or should do, and when I say should, they aren't all designed equally well, is that they force cars approaching the intersection to slow down because they have to make a turn to get onto the roundabout. So what's getting the cars to slow down as they approach the intersection is not a traffic light. It's actually... Uh, a uh, a turn let's imagine a wagon wheel. can everybody imagine a wagon wheel and there's a a hub at the center and let's make this a simple rag wagon wheel that has four spokes that come into uh, from the wheel. The spokes hit that hub at a 90 degree angle. It's a circle, so it's not true 90 degrees, but they, the, hub, the spokes hit the hub at a 90 degree angle. And a car coming down a spoke has to make a sharp right turn to start going around that circle. That's a geometric control. Um, uh, one of the things that distinguishes roundabouts is that the crossing point for a roundabout is not at the exact corner. It's actually a little bit before the corner. So in effect, if you're crossing the intake lane of a roundabout, and round, one of the things that characterizes roundabouts is you're, generally speaking, only crossing one direction of traffic at a time. So what you would do at a roundabout is you would cross the intake lane get onto an island, and then cross the outlet lane, if that makes sense. So you're only crossing one direction of traffic at a time, and the dangerous crossings at roundabouts are typically the outlet crossings. Inlet crossings, where the car is coming up down the spoke to the hub, okay, is uh, the cars will have to slow and stop as they're approaching that hub at the middle, the crossing point at most roundabouts is behind that first car. So there's a car stopped. You're crossing just behind it to get to the island. The dangerous point at roundabouts typically is crossing the exit lane because cars coming off of the hub going out the next spoke will tend to be accelerating. Um, so they, they can be intimidating in that way. Uh, but the... Um, <clears throat> drivers, that, again, it's, it's key to announce your presence uh, and, and announce your intent in, in how you cross them. Typically, roundabout speeds are lower than at, at regular intersections because of the circularity of the design and the fact that you have to you know, curve around pretty tight central circles, but, uh, but they can still hurt you. And, and, but more than anything else, they'll, they'll intimidate you. Um, roundabouts come in different flavors. There are single-lane, sort of smaller neighborhood roundabouts, uh, Mm. and there are uh, larger double-lane and even triple-lane roundabouts and other more complex designs. Single-lane roundabouts, typically these things have a flow that depends, maybe it's, it's coming out of a large neighborhood uh, there 's a roundabout there, and there will be a time of day when one crossing has a lot of pressure on it everybody 's coming out of the neighborhood going out to the on, to, on their way to work and again, here you have to the uh, cars will tend to just come around pretty quickly, and you have to enforce a yield using your general signal, a false step, a white cane to just force that those cars to stop and initiate your crossing. At double lane roundabouts, you have double problems. one is that a car in the near lane may stop and you start to initiate your crossing a car in the second lane may not okay, so you have to do it almost crossing by crossing and again, I would encourage the use of a, a white cane held horizontal to the ground to the ground parallel to the ground, out at shoulder height, so that cars see you coming if you 're coming around behind a first car to another car before going crossing uh, on your way. Um, the other trick at roundabouts is actually finding the crosswalks because they're not exactly at the corner. Typically, a well-designed roundabout will have a grass line or something like that that extends around the corner to help you locate the crosswalk. There's a lot of work going on right now uh, within uh, the o- O&M community and working with the uh, the Federal Highways folks, and the National Cooperative Highway Research Program on developing systems of what are called tactile walking surface indicators or tiles of some type that go across a sidewalk that would help a person who is blind or visually impaired know that they can turn left or right and go to a crosswalk Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time be designed in such a way that people who are in wheelchairs can get through those, those indicators without an unnecessary jolt. Uh, going through the, going through that space. Also, uh, there's some good work going on using surface indicators again to give good direction across the, those roadways. Because again, if you're coming around a corner and trying to make a turn into a crosswalk and there's traffic moving, it can get intimidating. Uh, so there there's a lot of work going on to improve. Uh, wayfinding what they call wayfinding help across across roundabout crossings i think this is something though that we're going to get better at as we get more and more of them uh going forward we'll become more skilled at them as a community how to teach them how to do them uh how to maintain our safety there and also you're you're going to see more countermeasures uh coming up in terms of how intersections are designed to make them safely we actually have a roundabout now in morristown a pretty big one and uh, we were involved in the planning of that. You know, something to look forward to, Terry, when you come back.
1: <laughs> the, uh,
2: uh, we were involved in, in some of the planning on that, uh, and we we have not had a problem there. There are problems with the roundabout, but not for us. There are design problems. That was their mistake, uh, but it doesn't affect us. So far, we've had no problem with it at all.
1: Um, Lucas, as you think about what we need to be aware of this visually impaired pedestrians. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we open for questions?
2: We've gotten older as a community. I notice myself, I'm, I'm 70 now, that that I don't hear as well as I, as I did. Uh, and that's an additional factor. So we've talked about the cars, we've talked about the sound of the cars, we've talked about all those things. My walking speed, my agility, is nowhere
3: mm-hmm.
2: what it was back in 1870 when I trained you, Terry. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. <laughs> hearing is, uh, is is not as good either. Uh, so, you know, we are a factor there. Uh, and, and But the, the flip side of that is is from the traffic engineering community, they recognize that uh, drivers are getting older, other pedestrians are getting older. For me, the big issue coming up down the pike is bicycles and uh, micromobility vehicles. Oh. Um, that, that's the thing that, that concerns me. And here again, uh, I think that having a, a, a cane that you, can, there's a, that you can hold out at, at shoulder height horizontally is, is a valuable tool. Um, nothing stops a, a bicycle like a cane in the head. That really is what worries me. There's a lot of work going on in the area of what are called floating bus stops. So a floating bus stop is a bus stop that uh, is going in. And normally, uh, of course, when we think of bus stops, we're on a major street. We're at our bus stop, a car pulls, the bus pulls up, we get on the bus, and off we go. But what's happening now is if you did that, then if there were bicyclists on that main road, they would have to pull out around the bus and put themselves at risk uh, with that heavy flow of traffic. Uh, on that main road, so in a, to to address that designers have come up with what are called floating bus stops or uh, i I forget what the new term is, but it doesn't involve floating anywhere um the um where there you're at the curb and there's a bike lane and you cross the bike lane and you get to an island, and the bus stops off the island, so bicyclists can come in between you and the and the bus stop, which is great, but of course they don't always and there are orientation issues there. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm involved in trying to come up with design parameters for how to do that in such a way that people can uh, uh, can still get to public transportation well. There was not long ago a, a, a lawsuit in British Columbia uh, where uh, some blind people complained about inaccessible and dangerous uh uh, quote, floating bus stops, unquote. And uh, they actually won that lawsuit uh, in British Columbia.
3: We have
1: about 10 minutes. I would like to allow some questions. Margie,
2: you're, you're up. I trained Margie in 1890, I
1: think. <laughs> That's right. That's right. right. My first dog many years ago. Um, I want to add another element um, to our travel as cane users guide dog users because I – um, not long ago, was almost hit by a car in my own neighborhood, and that is attentiveness. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to get into the store. We don't have time, but we are distracted travelers as well. We get a phone call. We answer the phone. We're not paying attention to driveways we cross. Um, there's just all kinds of distractions. If we're walking with another dog user, we might be shouting back and forth, but bottom line is we have to be 100% attentive 100% of the time.
2: Absolutely true. I mean, it's a two-way street, isn't it? Yep. Yep, absolutely.
1: You betcha. Thank you, Margie.
3: This is Sharon and I am in River Forest, Illinois. It's a suburb of Chicago, a near suburb. I just moved out here um, last June and um, I don't have a dog right now, Um, but anyway, they have a lot of streets here that are um, have lots of turning lanes, and I, I like the cane idea. Um, but they have buttons, but they don't make any sound. Right. So I don't know if they don't work, or um, or or what to do with it. So I just basically use my tried and true methods of of surviving for seventy three mm-hmm. years. Uh, and, um, you know, cross the streets. Um,
2: yeah. But
3: I will use the Keynesian, that's for sure. Thank you for that.
2: Sure. You know, the, uh, the, those tried-and-true techniques work, but one of the things that you might think about doing, uh, and Illinois can be tough. Chicago just lost an APS lawsuit uh, last year. Um, I mean, I, know, I understand you're not in Chicago. You're in a, uh, a suburb, but...
3: I think they won think, it, actually.
2: No, no, Chicago. Who won Let's be
3: clear uh, Chicago here. the the, no, they, the, uh, the I mean the,
2: the city people. yeah ACP the city lost. yeah one yeah right chicago yes.
3: lost yeah um
2: yes. the uh, that's what i meant we're on the same page um okay. the um the uh I mean, as you can advocate for an accessible signal for yourself There, there, there are you the first thing you need to figure out is who controls the intersection okay by which i mean uh at, at a at a partic- any particular intersection someone owns that it could be the city it could be the county it could be the state uh, and often um, they have they've had a divorce and they have shared custody where you know, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, the 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 county may own the intersection but the city maintains it uh so you have to find out who to contact uh who, who's in charge of it and you have to send them a letter don't call them okay don't drop them an email okay mm-hmm. send a certified mail piece of mail and you have to use some trigger language because you need to invoke the ada and the ada is a civil rights law and i, I hope that uh, sue is still on the line here if she if she wants to comment on this any further but uh, sue crawford but the uh um what 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 you're doing is you're saying that if there are walk don't walk signals there for people who can see then you are being in effect discriminated against because you don't have access to the the walk don't walk information that is being provided oh, yeah. to people so you and you can get we can get you more information on that but,
3: but oh I would love it
2: to the traffic engineer responsible for that Uh, and using this trigger language should get a response. It might not, in which case you follow it up and CC his or her boss and maybe your state senator, you know, and and that type of stuff. And you start playing that game, and eventually it can end up with the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is new regulation coming out uh, that has just come out but not yet been implemented that will make that even more likely for you to win, But called PROAG, but the – uh, but it's a long process, and you're still going to have to cross mm-hmm. that meantime. Well,
3: yeah, that's, I haven't got any choice in that.
2: Well, yeah. when I train
3: with my next dog, my I think my trainer would will be glad to know that, and <laughs> I will too.
2: Yeah, no, t- and again, it's, there there is trigger language that you need to yes. use that sort of says I'm being discriminated against because there is there is a signal there for walk, don't walk, uh, for people who can see it. I can't see it. I need access to that information. Mm-hmm.
3: That
2: Thank is, you very much. I appreciate that a lot. To know. And, um, the and then there's the idea of,
3: of, of finding the, uh, the, tra- the, uh, the, the, the uh, poles, too. I mean, yeah, they're all course. over the place.
2: They are. Well, again, that you know, the thing about traffic signals and anything on the street of like, uh, what that we're talking about is change is just about generational in nature. You know, they put in a signal 20 years ago. It's still working fine. There has to be a reason for them to change it. Uh, legal is is one of them, but uh, basically twenty years ago there were no regulations about where you put the darn push buttons, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, and wow. now they're oh, okay. So, it, uh,
1: that's pretty
3: obvious. I've seen that for sure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for that.
2: I
1: think we have about three and a half minutes left, so we may not have time to take another question. But I want to thank Lucas for giving such a thorough um, description of of all kinds of ways that we can improve our um, safety when we cross streets. This has been tremendously helpful. Um, I do wonder one thing, and I'll I'll just take the privilege and, and ask a question when there is not an accessible pedestrian signal but there is a traffic light and there certainly somewhere there's a pole with a button is there value if at all possible in locating that pole pushing the button going back to the intersection and maybe using something like OKO to um, try to determine when you have the walk light is is that a strategy that has some
2: it is, and and I would go further than that, and I would wait um, until the, the the traffic on the street you're trying to cross has just started before pushing the button, because that will give you maximum time to get back to the correct place and get yourself set up. Ah, So you'll have that full cycle going all the way around to to get yourself back in the right place and located. I would also, again, just reiterate to you that if anybody wants to use that technique with either the false forward motion, the exaggerated forward motion, or to use a cane uh, to indicate that you're intent to cross the street, that you practice that somewhere other than at the first street that you want to cross using this approach, that Mm -hmm. you... You go go mid-block or into your relieving area and just desensitize your dog to that huge motion or to, you know, to the cane coming out and point. Because if you do it for the first time at a street crossing, the dog's likely to go, what the heck is going on here, and go God knows where. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So desensitize your dog to that before you use it. Absolutely. Otherwise, you'd
1: find yourself uh, leaving the curb when you sure aren't ready to do that.
2: For example, Um, Right. (laughs)
1: Well, I want to thank you again, Lucas, for your time and your incredible wisdom on this subject. It's
2: a pleasure. Just seeing all these these familiar names on my screen is uh, <laughs> is just terrific.
0: If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind, or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at five zero two eight nine five four five nine eight, or email us at kcb at kentucky acb dot org American American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Soundprints. Have a great week, everybody.